0: Well, good morning again, everybody. Good morning. If you've been with us over the past uh, few months, from time to time, we've been looking at the book of the prophet Malachi. Malachi, and so far in the book, we've seen Malachi confront the Judeans' doubting of God's love and begrudgery in God's worship and faithlessness toward God's covenant and challenging of God's justice, and now this morning we come to Malachi's confrontation of the Judeans' stinginess in God's offering. There's stinginess in God's offering. Now, stinginess is kind of a funny word, and not a word that we use too often, so if you don't know, stinginess, or being stingy, is when you hold something back and you you give reluctantly or not at all, so some synonyms might be greediness or tight-fistedness or ungenerousness, if that's a word. Now, are any of you familiar with Jeff Foxworthy's you know you are redneck if jokes? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know you're a redneck if you own a homemade fur coat or <laughs> You know you're a redneck if you think a chainsaw is a musical instrument. Well, to help us understand what stinginess looks like, I thought I'd do a variation on that, except this will be called, you know you're stingy if, okay? So first, kids, you know you're stingy if you don't share your toys with your siblings. And you know you're stingy if you're a ball hog on the basketball court or the soccer field. And you know you're stingy if you refuse to give others a turn to do something that you're doing. Young adults, you know you're stingy if you stuff a bunch of extra hot sauce packets into your purse or your pockets every time you're in Taco Bell, because you know it's good insurance to always have about a week's worth of Taco Bell hot sauce in your possession in case of emergency. And you know you're stingy if you love borrowing things that you conveniently forget to return. And you know you're stingy if you're always asking someone else to drive so that you can save the gas in your car. Older adults, you know you're stingy if you bring a bottle of cheap wine to a party but then only drink the expensive stuff that others brought. (laughs) And you know you're stingy if you list items to sell on Facebook Marketplace or OfferUp or one of those places for the absolute highest price you think somebody might be willing to pay, rather than for a reasonable and generous price, a price that might actually bless someone in need. And you know you're stingy if you give servers at restaurants small tips, or worse, no tip at all. Or or if you're always secretly hoping that someone at the table will offer to pick up the tab so that you don't have to pay for your food and drinks. In every case of stinginess, someone is holding something back rather than opening their hands in generosity and is giving reluctantly, or not at all, rather than cheerfully, and it seems to me to be one of the most un like behaviors as Jesus held nothing back and gave so generously out of love and joy even when it cost him his life. And as we'll see this morning in our passage, when we become sinfully stingy in our hearts, we not only rob other people, but we rob ourselves as well and we even rob God. We even rob God. Let me pray for us, then we'll dig into this passage. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, this this book of Malachi has been a tough one to preach from for a lot of reasons. Some of it is hard to understand and, and some of it is hard to hear. It's hard for us to come to grips with and to be honest with ourselves about. And Lord, this morning is yet another hard word to hear. It's, it's the kind of word that many of us may be tempted to resist or to make excuses for or to think this is probably describing everyone else in the room but not me. And Lord, I just pray that you would squash such thoughts within us. Lord, by your grace, please, please squash those thoughts within us. I pray that your spirit would help us this morning to see and to hear and to know and to love the truth from your word and the hope that we have in our savior, Jesus, despite our sin and rebellion against you, Lord. Oh, Lord, you are so gracious to us. So, Lord, help us now, we pray, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to the last book of the Old Testament. The book of the prophet Malachi. If you turn to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and then turn back a couple pages, you'll find Malachi. Book of Malachi, and this morning we'll be in chapter three, verses seven through 12, looking at Malachi's fifth wake-up call to renewed covenant fidelity on the topic of the Judean stinginess in God's offering. So again, that's chapter three, verses seven through 12. Let me read it. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, my laws, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? probably talking about locusts here. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So here's an outline of what we just read. We saw a call to return, verse seven. And then we saw a charge of robbery, verse eight. And then we see a clarification regarding the curse, verse nine, and lastly we see a commitment to richly bless the repentant, verses 10 through 12. So again, that's a call to return, a charge of robbery, a clarification regarding the curse, and a commitment to richly bless the repentant. So let's first look a little more closely at this call to return, verse seven. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So here God is pointing out that a a generational pattern of unfaithfulness in following his laws has emerged among the people of Judah. He says that this turning aside, this going away from his laws has been happening all the way from the days of their fathers, which probably refers not just to the men in their lives that they grew up calling dad, but to all of their forefathers, their grandfathers and their fathers and their fathers. But here, God is calling this generation to not follow in those footsteps, to not walk down that well-worn path, to not continue that vicious cycle of sin, but to instead turn around and go the other way toward him. Question, are there any generational sins in your family? Sins that seem to have been passed down from generation to generation to generation? Maybe pride? Generations of family members who care way too much about how other people view them. Or drunkenness. Generations of family members who turn to the bottle for comfort. Or anger. Generations of family members who yell a lot. Or bitterness. Generations of family members who hold on to grudges for years. Or maybe abuse, divorce, lust, lying, theft, stinginess. Can you recognize any patterns of sin in your family tree? And do you ever feel something in your heart pulling you towards something sinful that your dad struggled with and his dad struggled with and his dad struggled with? God reveals here that sometimes things never change. One generation grows up watching the former and learns that this is the way to act and to live and to treat people and the vicious cycle of sin is never broken. But God also reveals here that the cycle can be broken and doesn't have to continue, amen? By the grace of God, kids can rise up and say, you know what? I'm not gonna follow in my father's footsteps. I'm gonna go a different way. And by the grace of God, fathers can rise up and say, you know what, I'm not gonna take my family down the same path that I was dragged down as a kid. We're gonna go a different way. God says here that the Judeans don't have to keep walking in the ways of their fathers. They can turn to him and can walk in the way of their heavenly father. So then in the passage, the Judeans ask how they can return to God. Which then brings us to verse eight, the charge of robbery. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? So the Judeans have been robbing God by being so stingy, by holding back and giving reluctantly or not at all in their tithes and contributions, their offerings. And so, if the Judeans want to return to the Lord and have any kind of relationship with Him, they must stop robbing Him. Now, in the Old Testament, the tithe, which means tenth, was the one-tenth minimum of the people's money and animals and grains and crops and everything really of monetary value which was given as an offering to the Lord on an annual basis. So if you had 200 shekels, at least 20 of them would be given to the Lord. And if you had 10 chickens, at least one of them would be given to the Lord. And if you had a bushel of barley, you'd calculate out what one-tenth of that would be and then at the very minimum that amount would be given to the Lord and so on and so forth. Now, here's a good question. What was the purpose of the tithe? Why did God ask his people to give an offering from from everything they had earned or raised or grown? I mean, God doesn't need our money. He owns everything, he's God. So what was the purpose of the tithe? Well, let me give you three answers. Number one, the tithe was a reminder that everything in life is a gift from God. The tithe was a reminder that everything in life is a gift from God. I mean, just think about this. If you and your family had to sort through all your money and all your animals and all your grain and all your crops and then pull out at least one-tenth of it and load it up onto a big cart and then trudge it up to the temple, that would be a pretty exhausting task, right? That would be kind of a hassle. But think about this. The more of a hassle it was, the more stalks of corn you had to chop down, the more livestock you had to wrangle, the more fruits and veggies you had to pick, the more of a hassle it was, the more God's abundant blessing upon your family would be evident, right? I think this act of gathering up all your offerings to be taken to the temple if you took a second to stop and look around at everything you had, I think it would make you feel very blessed by God and would remind you that all of this is a gift from his hands. The tithe was a reminder that everything in life is a gift from God. Number two, the tithe was an expression of thanks to God in worship. The tithe was an expression of thanks to God in worship. The tithe was thanksgiving. It was giving from a place of thankfulness for what God had given. So in a sense, it was, it was like saying, Lord, thank you for those apple seeds which grew into mighty trees. Lord, here's some of the harvest. Or, Lord, thank you for the health of our cows and for the birth of many calves. Lord, here's some of the milk, and here's one of those precious calves. Or, Lord, thank you that business has been good this year. Lord, here's some of the prophets. Psalm chapter 95, which I read at the beginning of this service, in verses 2 and 7, it says, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I love that, he gives to us, and he feeds us, and he cares for us, and that should result and resound in worshipful thanksgiving. And that's what the tithe was. It was an expression of thanks to God in worship. And number three, the tithe was the means by which the priests were supported. The tithe was the means by which the priests were supported. For the priests, their only source of income was the people's offerings because they were never given an allotment of land in the promised land like everyone else was and because they were completely set apart unto their ministry. That was their only job. So because the priests were never able to grow food or raise cattle or do anything that everyone else did in order to survive and make money, the priests were totally dependent upon the faithful giving of the people for their livelihood. And the same is the case for many pastors today. Their only job is ministry, and their livelihood is totally dependent upon the faithful giving of their congregation. So to review, the tithe was a reminder that everything in life is a gift from God. The tithe was an expression of thanks to God in worship. And the tithe was the means by which the priests were supported. And it's this tithe that the Judeans have become sinfully stingy in. Which leads me to conclude three things. The priests must be destitute. And the people must be thankless. And the people must be thinking that they are responsible for every good thing in their life. And so you see that the Judeans' stinginess in God's offering has robbed others, and it's robbed themselves, and it's robbed God. It's robbed him of the praise and thanks and glory due to his name. So then God lets his people in on a little secret by giving a clarification regarding the curse. Verse nine, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you, and of course, this curse God's referring to here is the famine they've been experiencing, which we read about in verses ten and eleven. The vines in the field have failed to bear, and and other crops have been destroyed by the devourer, the locusts, and the people are in need. So here's what God is saying: You know the curse you've been experiencing. That's from my hand. That's from my hand. I have withdrawn my blessing from you and have cursed you because you are robbing me. In other words, if the people are going to depend upon and trust in their money and their animals and their grains and their crops before the God from whom all blessings flow then he is going to curse them and take these good things away from them so that they will come to recognize that all the blessings in their life come not from their own hands, but from his. And praise God, praise God that this curse isn't the end of the story for the Judeans. No, God is using this curse to give them a sense of their need for him and to bring them to repentance and to restore them to relationship with him. And here's the amazing promise God gives in verses 10 through 12. He gives a commitment to richly bless the repentant saying, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So think about the situation the Judeans are in right now. They've been withholding the tithe and God has withheld his blessing, and now they're suffering under the curse of famine. And so you see that they've dug themselves into a hole that is so deep at this point that now it's harder than ever to trust in God. Because now, if they take God at his word and they give him offerings from their money when they are so poor, and from their food when they are starving, if God doesn't come through on his promises, They could die. God is asking his people to take a big risk, and that is to obey him even when it's terribly inconvenient, and even when it appears that the consequences of such obedience could be deadly. And so he encourages them to take the risk, saying, put me to the test. Put me to the test. Trust me and watch me prove my faithfulness to you, my beloved. Obey me and I will reverse the curse and make you a land of delight. And that's Malachi's fifth wake-up call. Now, obviously, this whole situation doesn't apply to us in the exact same way that it applied to the Judeans 2,400 years ago because we are no longer under the old covenant and we no longer have a need for priests or temples because Jesus is our great high priest who appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9:26). And God now calls us his temple, his dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 6:19, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. And when we read New Testament passages on giving, listen to this, when we read New Testament passages on giving, we see that the emphasis is on voluntary and generous and cheerful giving rather than on the giving of a set amount like the 10% tithe under the old covenant law. So instead of simply saying you all must hit this amount in your giving. The New Testament actually raises the bar, in my estimation, and says, give whatever God has put on your heart to give and do it joyfully, which forces us to actually think and feel and pray about our giving rather than just adhere to a rule that can be followed thoughtlessly. So things things are a bit different for us today. However, our offerings are still a reminder that everything in life is a gift from God. And there's still an expression of thanks to God in worship. And there's still the means by which our pastors ought to be supported according to 1 Corinthians 9.14 and 1 Timothy 5.17-18. through 18. So the application here should be fairly obvious. But before we get to that, I want to stop us right here. And I want to make us aware of three deadly traps just waiting for us, in which we might fall into if we aren't extremely careful moving forward. Okay? So, trap number one is the trap of self preservation, the trap of self preservation. A person who falls into the trap of self-preservation would respond to this passage by actually doubling down on his unwillingness to give, but with this caveat, that he absolutely intends to give, just not right now. Not right now. The self-preserver would say something like this. Look, I want to give, I really do, and I will give, just." not yet, okay? And I have a reason, and I have a plan. I'm going to put my head down, and I'm going to work a little bit harder, and then when I've come to a place of financial stability, then I'll be in a position where I can give, which is a dangerous game to play because the phrase financial stability is kind of open to interpretation, right? Because it's possible to live in a three-story house on a lake with a nice boat, but still feel financially unstable, right? And it's it's possible because we all have different ideas about what financial stability is, right? For some people, it's making six figures a year and maxing out the 401k and the IRA and having at least $20,000 in savings and owning a rental house or two. And for those people, if one of those things are, are ever so slightly off the mark, they might be inclined to not give until they're on the mark, because they consider themselves to be financially unstable. And the problem with this, of course, is that this kind of thinking prioritizes our finances completely backwards. Because in these cases, our offerings are not our first fruits that we bring to the Lord in thankfulness and worship before we do anything else with our money but they become our last fruits that we bring to the Lord in thankfulness and worship only if we've already done everything else that we want to do with our money. (laughs) It's completely backwards, and it makes our giving as an act of worship an afterthought. It says, Lord, you'll get your thankfulness and worship when the time is right, when everything in my life has fallen into place just the way I'm expecting it to, when we should be saying, Oh Lord, I thank you and I worship you. And after I give this offering to you, then I will consider how to steward the rest of my finances in a way that brings honor and glory to your great name. Now, let me come at this from a different angle. While some people seem to have it all, but still don't give, because for them it's just not enough, some other people seem to have little, and still don't give, because for them, their poverty is the perfect excuse to not give. Their poverty makes them feel like they're off the hook. And to be fair, in some cases, their poverty may very well get them off the hook and may be a perfectly legitimate excuse to not give in that season of their life, okay? But poverty is another word that's kind of open to interpretation, right? Because it's possible to live in a decent apartment and own a decent car and have a decent job and have a fridge full of food and a 60-inch TV with a subscription to Netflix, but still feel impoverished. And by some metrics, because our standard of living here in America is so high, by some metrics, those people might be considered impoverished. And that designation alone might, might incline some people to not give. And I just want to point out that it's possible for some impoverished people to be just as stingy as some wealthy people. It's possible, it's all a matter of the heart. And some people's hearts are just full of greed while others just overflow in generosity. In fact, some of the most incredible generosity I've ever experienced has come from some of the most incredibly impoverished people I've ever met, whose hearts are just so big and so full of joy, even though they have so little and and seemingly every reason in the world to grumble. Their hearts are just so big and so full of joy. They just overflow in generosity. The person who is prone to self-preservation whether rich or poor, needs to recognize that every good and every perfect gift in their life is from above, James 1.17. And that recognition should move us to trust in the Lord, to trusting that He will preserve me. He will take care of me. If the birds of the air are fed by his hand and the lilies of the field are so clothed by him, how much more will he provide and care for me? I need only to trust and obey. We must be extremely careful to avoid the trap of self-preservation and instead trust that God will preserve us and he'll do a better job at it than we ever could. And then trap number two is the trap of self-exaltation. The trap of self-exaltation or exalting oneself. A person who falls into the trap of self-exaltation would respond to this passage by becoming a super giver in an attempt to justify themselves before God and to make themselves feel like a good person. These are the kinds of people who give a lot and want everyone to know that they give a lot. The kinds of people who feel the need to broadcast all of their charitable giving on social media. The kinds of people who feel the need to host lots of charity events because they love being the figurehead for all things charitable. The kinds of people who feel the need to let their left hand know exactly what their right hand is doing, if you know what I mean. And if you think about it, the person who falls into this trap turns their giving into an act of thankfulness and worship. To whom? To themselves. To themselves. Instead of giving with the eyes of their hearts, gazing heavenward, saying, Lord, thank you for all your precious gifts. They give with the eyes of their hearts, gazing inward, saying, probably something along the lines of what the Pharisee said in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector Lord, thank you that I am not like other men. I am different. I am a good person. Amen. <laughs> Do you remember that parable? That's essentially what he does. And do you remember which of those two men went home justified before God? The one who was embarrassed to even look up to heaven but beat his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus ends the parable by saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The self-exalter needs to recognize that the only thing that justifies him is the mercy of God shown to us in the Savior who gave it all and paid it all upon the cross in our place. The self-exalter needs to dethrone himself from that place of glory where God alone belongs and needs to stand under the shadow of the cross and not in his works, good or bad. So along with self-preservation, we must be extremely careful to avoid the trap of self-exaltation and instead humble ourselves before the one who is seated upon the throne. And then trap number three is the trap of self-indulgence. The trap of self-indulgence. And I'll illustrate this one with a parable that Charles Spurgeon once told titled, The Carrot and the Horse, which I shared in a sermon a few years ago. The parable goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said to himself, my If that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, having just given him his finest horse. Why would the king give him nothing in return? And the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The person who gives in order to get falls into the trap of self-indulgence and would respond to this passage kind of like the nobleman in Spurgeon's parable. He'd read all this talk of God opening the windows of heaven and pouring down a blessing and making his people a land of delight and he'd bring great offerings to the Lord. But all the while, just seeking the gifts and not the giver of the gifts. And... In the final analysis, all his giving would really just be giving to himself. (laughs) Because he'd be treating his giving in the same way he treats his 401k as an investment for him. And like the king in Spurgeon's parable, the Lord can see right through that because he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The self indulger needs to recognize that God's intention is that we will get in order to give. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You hear that? God gives so generously to us so that we can participate in his giving Kind of like how a father might, might give his kids some money to buy ice cream from the ice cream man for all the kids in the cul-de-sac and not to just buy himself 12 ice creams. God gives so generously to us so that we can participate in his giving. And so we see that neither self-preservation nor self-exaltation nor self-indulgence can ever fix a stingy heart. In fact, they'll only make it worse. They'll only deepen that hole within us. And so the answer, the application for us this morning, is this, and it's a little long, but I think it ties together everything we've talked about. Told you, it's long, really long. I think it's the longest application I've ever written. Avoiding every trap by getting ourself out of the picture we must obediently give our offerings to the Lord in a spirit of cheerfulness and thankfulness and worship, trusting that the one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also graciously give us all things and everything we need. That last part's taken right out of Romans chapter eight. Let me read that one more time. Avoiding every trap by getting ourself out of the picture, we must obediently give our offerings to the Lord in a spirit of cheerfulness and thankfulness and worship, trusting that the one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also graciously give us all things and everything we need. And so, you see, that in that application is the motivation for trust and obedience that God is the great giver of all things. And if he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, allowing him to become a curse for us so that he might reverse the curse within us, making our wicked hearts a land of delight, a fruitful garden a place where his presence and glory dwells. If God gave us his one and only son, what else in all creation will he not graciously give to those who love him and to those who trust him and to those who demonstrate that trust by obedience to him? Amen? Amen. By nature we're all takers. By nature, we're all stingy. By nature, we're like squirrels who wanna gather up all our nuts and hide them away. And the irony, of course, is that we're all essentially running around with ice cream money in our hands from our Heavenly Father, which we did not earn or deserve, and yet we are so tempted We are so tempted all the time to think that it's all mine, 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 because it's in our hands. But by new nature, through repentance and faith in Jesus and in what he accomplished on our behalf, by new nature, God can make us abundantly generous. God can make us more like him. Isn't that amazing? God can make us more like him. And it starts by recognizing and resting in his goodness and his graciousness and his generosity. His own character and how generous he has been toward us even at the cost of life itself. This should move our hearts to worship and should Fling open our hands in cheerful generosity in our church and in our community and in our homes because people who've been given this much can give much for the glory of God. Amen? Will you stand with me to pray? Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for this word which reminds us that you are the great giver of all things and that you are so good and so gracious and so generous that while we were yet sinners, while we were selfish and stingy and prideful and rebellious, just following the course of this world, just following the footsteps of our fathers, just living our lives under the curse of sin in every way. Lord, at that time, you, in love, gave your Son to die for us, to bear in his body upon that cross all your wrath and justice that our sin had earned us for the wages of sin is death. Oh, Lord, help us to really believe those words we sometimes sing How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ, our Lord, his blood, our ransom and defense, his glory, our reward. The sum of all created things is worthless and compare for our inheritance is him whose praise angels declare. Lord, help us to really believe that the path of stinginess is one that leads to utter ruin and destruction and not to life And Lord, help us to really believe that you will provide and care for us when we step out in faith and take big risks in obedience to you, Lord. Oh Lord, I also pray just specifically for the parents in this room. Lord, I pray that you would lay this word upon their hearts in in such a way that it would move them to teach their children about giving as an act of worship and that they, as parents, would model that for them faithfully. faithfully. Lord, that we would not raise up a generation of stingy and ungrateful and entitled children, but Lord, a generation of generous and cheerful children. Lord, a generation of children who know that the money in their hands is proverbial ice cream money, and that they have the privilege and pleasure of getting to share it, Lord. And Lord, for those of us in this room who just feel just terribly embarrassed by all this, perhaps, who know that they've just blown it when it comes to giving as an act of worship, Lord, I pray that you would lift their eyes off of themselves this morning and onto the cross where Jesus gave it all and paid it all and said, it is finished And Lord, that they would receive your forgiveness and know your forgiveness and would no longer walk in shame because Jesus, you bore their shame. And Lord, I pray that that would move their hearts to worship you this morning and would make them want to obey you whatever the cost because you are so worthy. Oh Lord, you are so worthy. So, Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. Well, may we all go in the grace of God. And again, happy Mother's Day. Make sure to grab a gift on your way out.